I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, the podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Dean Detloff. And I'm the other co-host, Matt Bernico. This week on the show, we have a pretty challenging but important interview with Jonathan Kutab, the executive director of Friends of Sabeel, North America. I think everybody's eyes have been glued to what's happening in Gaza and in Palestine right now, and ours have too. And like everybody else, we're trying our best to make sense of it and try to learn about solidarity in light of that. And we thought it would be important to talk to an actual Palestinian person to really make sense of that situation. And I think, as you'll see in the interview, Jonathan has really gone out of his way to help us figure it out and also talk about the the real challenges and difficulties of the the situation. Yeah, uh, maybe a quick trigger warning for this episode, because it is pretty heavy. You'll hear conversations of violence and genocide but also other hopeful stuff like solidarity. It's really worth listening to. It's important. I think it's important stuff to hear, but I just want to flag that it is heavy. So (laughs) that's it. (laughs) That's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah, I think that's all you can say. Uh, We probably don't need to do any contextualizing, actually, the interview from here. I think it speaks for itself. So why don't we just go right over to Jonathan? This week, we're joined by Jonathan Kutab, the executive director of Friends of Sabeel, North America. Jonathan, welcome to the show. We know it's a really busy and challenging time, so we appreciate you taking that time to, to spend with us and talk with us. And of course, we want to talk about the situation in Gaza, but I think it might help people to kind of start with some basics and work our way to that situation. Um, Friends of Sabeel is a, a really global network of people in solidarity with the people of Palestine and the Sabeel Ecumenical Palestinian Liberation Theology Center. And those are a lot of kind of big words all at once. So can you describe maybe what that means? Uh, what is the Sabeel Center in Palestine, and, and how are you connected? Okay. Sabeel actually is a center that grew out of an attempt to make our faith as Christians relevant to the situation we are in. Uh, it basically started as a discussion after church, uh, where we talked about the current situation, we talked about violence and nonviolence, we talked about the occupation, we talked about God and heaven and hell and our relationship to our Muslim brothers and sisters and our relationship with the with the Jews and Israelis and Zionists and and how do we read our Bible in a way that is relevant to what is happening? So the idea of a liberation theology is that our theology should be liberating us rather than confining us or oppressing us. So Palestinian liberation theology grew out of uh, those discussions. That's great. That sounds like a great after church conversation to have. Uh, Far more interesting than the ones that are happening at my church, I think. (laughs) On this podcast, we talk a lot about liberation theology, um, and you just mentioned it here a second ago. But uh, with a few exceptions, we're usually talking about theologians and theologies uh, in Latin America and uh, sometimes in Africa even. But uh, who are some of the major theologians in Palestinian liberation theology, and uh, what are some themes that come up for them that might be uh, unique or uh, of note? Well, uh, of course, Naim Atik, uh, an Episcopal priest, is the one who started it, and he wrote a book, Justice and Only Justice. Uh, but we have Mitri Rahib, who's a Lutheran, 
uh, and uh, we have uh, uh, Amazon and uh, one more. I'll, I'll remember him in a minute. But uh, basically, Mundir Ishaq. That's it. Mundir Ishaq. Uh, but basically, it's it's ordinary people talking about relevant issues. We we found out something very interesting uh, when uh, in these discussions. Uh, we found out that majority of Palestinian Christians from all denominations uh, tend to be pacifist, nonviolent. We understand Jesus' teaching not to allow us to pick up the guns and the bombs and kill our enemies. We're supposed to love our enemies, not kill them. Uh, we found out that also, uh, so, so one of the features of Palestinian liberation theology is while it concentrates on justice, it does not approve and advocate violence. Uh, even though Palestinians have the right uh, to, 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 to resist and to use armed struggle, at least Palestinian Christians don't think that that's the way of Christ. So we tend to be pacifist. We also tend to be ecumenical. Uh, we have people from different denominations. Uh, we have uh, evangelicals. We have Catholics. We have uh, Greek Orthodox. We have uh, Protestants, Baptists, Lutheran, whatever. Uh, so amazingly, all of these people t tend to understand the situation in a very similar way and to emphasize certain things. So I, I would say these two uh, probably uh, important uh, features of Palestinian liberation theology that may not be found uh, to the same degree in other liberation theologies. We also yeah. uh, we also uh, tend to understand uh, the, the the dangers of Christian Zionism, which uses biblical texts usually out of context to justify the oppression of Palestinians in the name of God and in the name of certain interpretations of, of, of the Bible. Yeah, we're going to, I think, talk about all those themes some more in the next hour, all very interesting and helpful things to kind of have up front. So thanks for that that summary. And I'm interested too, you were saying Sabil kind of came out of these conversations after church, these casual conversations or kind of reflecting on what's happening in your environment and so on. Um, and where where has Sabil grown? If if those are maybe the seeds, you know, what does the tree of Sabil look like, or or how is it sort of branching off? It seems like such an interesting global international network, but it's rooted in this concrete experience. So, what does that work look like? Well, a lot of our activities uh, centered around uh, conferences that were held by Sabil, uh, as well as. Uh, tours, people, pilgrims who come to the Holy Land, who also talk to Palestinian Christians, and, and regional conferences that were held in, in, in different countries, usually by people who have visited at least once uh, uh, the Holy Land. And now it's grown into quite a, uh, a movement because we are also involved in the Kairos document. Uh, which was a document prepared by Palestinian Christians to address the situation uh, in, in Israel-Palestine. And uh, today, FOSNA, for example, Friends of Sabil North America, is, is, is an independent uh, organization itself. It's an American organization. Uh, but much of its activity is supportive of the Sabil Center in Jerusalem, as well as getting the Sabil message out the United States people in America. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I was looking at the uh, the Friends of Sabil website, and I noticed that there uh, a, a prominent thing on the website is is urging people in uh, in North America to take a, a trip to Palestine, to Israel, um, to to see the Holy Land. And uh, I think that's such an interesting thing because I mean, growing up in 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 a weird evangelical community, those types of trips are often promoted, but the Friends of Sabil um, <laughs> trip seems of a different. Uh, a different variety, a different uh, emphasis, right? So I guess I wonder, I wonder what you'd say about growing those those ties with people in North America and Palestine, and and why it's you know important for people in North America to be in solidarity with the people of Palestine. A lot of these uh, tours that come, uh, they are really controlled 
by the Israeli Ministry of Tourism and their people. Uh, they avoid <laughs> Palestinian Christians. They go and see a few holy places, uh, but they hear the Israeli propaganda line. Uh, they, 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 they sort of direct them towards what they want to see. So they come and walk where Jesus walked and see the holy places and come back with no appreciation for the current situation because they don't talk to local Palestinians. In fact, they're told that it's dangerous. Don't go into Bethlehem. Well, yes, maybe you can go visit the Church of Nativity and leave very quickly and not really see anybody uh, and not, not really appreciate the the living stones, the people who are living in the land. Uh, so our tours, we try to, uh, yes, see the holy places, but also see the holy people living in those places as well. And, and whatever they are confronting, uh, the occupation, the wall, the, uh, the, the, the oppression, and the, and, and the clear apartheid system that, that, that gives uh, Jews in Israel rights that it doesn't give to the local indigenous people who are the Palestinians. Yeah, it strikes me too that it matters especially to have that North American connection because obviously the United States has a very special and particular relationship with the state of Israel and as you were saying Christian Zionism is a a huge piece of that as well and you know in the US it it influences foreign policy, it influences elections, all kinds of other things. Um, and maybe we could talk a little bit about that feature of the work of, of FASNA, the Friends of Sibyl in North America. You know, what is it like to kind of think through how Christians perceive the Holy Land, how they perceive those kinds of trips, how they perceive Israel and so on, and how does Christian Zionism play into that? Well, Christian Zionism doesn't always declare itself to be Christian Zionism. Uh, many people are under the influence of Christian Zionism without even using the word. They just grew up in church where the word Israel is repeatedly used and they conflate the Israel of the Old Testament with the current day state of Israel. They sort of have a, an affinity. Everybody talks about Judeo-Christian as if they are one unit. They never, you never hear them talk about Islamic uh, Christian or Judeo-Christian is part of what you grow up with. So you have a certain affinity. You jump over 2,000 years of history and you jump over much of the New Testament where Jesus came and basically took away those elements of special chosen people and gave his salvation to everybody. And, and, and where Christianity took away the narrow territorial tribal view and opened up uh, God's love and God's salvation to the whole world. For God so loved the world, not just the Jewish people, that he gave his only begotten son. So whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So Christian Zionism sort of jumps over that uh, message of universality and, and sort of tries to draw on certain verses in the Old Testament that, that, that God has a special relation to the Jewish people and to the Holy Land, which he gave to Jews. And therefore, uh, they have a right to take it because God gave it to them. Yeah, and as you're saying that, I mean, it's interesting because uh, I think many of us who grew up, especially in an evangelical church or spend time there, kind of have experience with that like one-to-one -one reading where whatever you read in the Bible is just sort of mirrored, whether it's Israel or many other kinds of things, you know, the Bible kind of is, is made a little too simple um, when we apply it to our own time. And, you know, I, I imagine when you say things like that, probably also there are all kinds of, um, uh, I guess the way I imagine people hearing that is as a, a kind of anti-Semitic uh, gesture or something like that. And I know that Fasna has has kind of struggled to um, uh, to clarify what it's really saying when it's talking about these things. So could you talk to us a little bit about that? I mean, there is this Christian history of anti-Semitism, but Fasna is trying to, to do something different, and especially in light of this context and so on. So help us think through some of those nuances. We're very clear. Anti-Semitism is wrong and it's a sin. 
because God loves the Jewish people. But he also loves the Palestinians. <laughs> he also loves other people as well. Uh, and, and, and the position uh, towards Israel and Zionism has nothing to do with uh, the position towards Jews and Judaism. Because I, I want to be very clear, uh, those who hate Jews, uh, those who hate Judaism, those who uh, have anti-Semitic feelings uh, need to repent from that sin. <laughs> and, and Christians have been guilty of that sin. But what Zionism and the state of Israel is, does is something totally different. It's a political movement that uses the Bible, but also uses other things to justify a system that privileges Jews over others. Just like we say it's wrong to discriminate and to be racist against Jews, it's also wrong to give Jews privilege, status, domination, and rights which you deny to the others. The Christian message is one of equality. It is one of justice. While we challenge and fight against Zionism, yet we are always very clear that we don't fight against Jews and we don't fight against Judaism. We fight against that political movement that says Jews should be privileged that they should have a country where they are the bosses over everybody else. To, to pivot the conversation a little bit here, uh, I wonder if we could talk about the current crisis in, in Palestine a bit. I mean, this is a, a huge question to ask, but what are you hearing from your partners in Palestine around the world, I, I guess? Uh, is, what is happening there is absolutely horrible because the, 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 the state of Israel has been ruling Palestinians for so long under Israeli occupation. And one group of Palestinians, the people in Gaza, have been cut off from the rest of the world and kept in basically an open-air prison. If you can imagine a small strip, 20 miles long and between 5 and 8 miles wide, where there's 2.3 million people living, half of them children, and where Israel controls the airspace, the coast, uh, all the boundaries, uh, all the land boundaries except for a small strip which it also controls in conjunction with Egypt. Nothing can go in or out of there without Israeli permission. And they regulate that permission, who they allow out and who they don't allow out based on what's good for them, not what's good for the local population. So no goods, no people can come in or out of the Gaza Strip without their permission. And that siege has been tightened for 16 years since Hamas won the elections. And basically, Hamas won the elections because Fatah was so corrupt. But since that time, Israel has sealed off the Gaza Strip and has basically used Hamas to control it. So they don't have any more elections there or in the West Bank. And people are under pressure. It's like a pressure cooker. And after a while, pressure, 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 and then the pressure explodes. It was more like a jailbreak than anything else. And yes, they committed some crimes by targeting civilians as well as military. They actually killed about 250 Israeli soldiers, but they also killed about seven or 800 civilians. And uh, the laws of war are very clear. You should not target civilians and you should not take kidnap them and take them as hostages. But then Israel turned around and started doing the same to the Palestinians. They actually dropped on that little piece of land more bombs in the first six days than the U.S. used in Afghanistan for a whole year. They really bombed that place. And they've killed and just recently a hospital has been bombed in in uh, in Gaza. Of course, Israeli says it's not us. This is the Palestinians who did it to themselves. But they have actually attacked the perimeters of hospitals, Ahli uh, Hospital, the European Hospital, and another hospital. They've attacked them all, and now they're ordering people to leave the northern half of the Gaza Strip. 
1.1 million people are ordered to leave their homes within 24 hours. They've ordered the hospital to evacuate, which the hospital refused to do. And now it got bombed. So it is really, really tragic what is happening. And they get away with it by demonizing Hamas. Hamas is evil because they attacked civilians. Yes, they did. And they shouldn't. And then by demonizing them, we can do whatever we want because they're the bad guys. So we can go in and kill civilians and bomb hospitals. We can cut off water and electricity for the entire population and food. And we can bomb them at will because we're going after Hamas. We, we, we hear about family and friends there who have lost many members of the family, but who also have no electricity, no food, no water. And Israel openly says, we are not going to give you those things until we defeat Hamas. And who knows whether they will ever succeed in defeating and eliminating Hamas. It's obviously heartbreaking to hear about what's happening in Palestine and uh, unfathomable even to imagine being in such a situation. So I appreciate you giving us a little bit of a, um, a window into what's happening. Um, you know, we're recording this on Tuesday, October 17th. It'll come out later this week. So probably things will have changed even by the time this uh, airs. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of listeners trying to follow the, the situation, how it's developing, um, are also trying to understand how we got to this place. And I mean, this is also a very big question. We're asking you many very big questions, but how might you kind of briefly describe, you know, what's what's led up to, to this event? Like what what are some of the, the key details uh, as a background for this conflict? You, you've gestured toward them, but yeah. Well, you have to understand that there is a basic contradiction between the local Palestinians who say Palestine Arabi. This belongs to its people, Jews, Christians, Muslims, whatever. And between the Zionist movement, which says, no, we want a Jewish state, as Jewish as France is French. So these two movements have been at each other's throats and have been fighting over every inch of land and over every person who is born or who immigrates into that land. So demography and land are two important uh, elements for either group. Now, we need to find a solution that allows both to live there together. And that solution has to be based on the principle of equality. You cannot deny one group rights. You cannot say if you're Jewish, you can immigrate here. But if you're Palestinian, you cannot come here even if you were born here or if your parents were born here. Uh, this belongs only for Jews. You have to have equality and you have to have democracy and you have to have a system of government that is just, that is fair. You know, uh, Sabil, we always say justice is the cornerstone. We don't believe violence is, is, is what should determine things. We don't think that nationalism or ethnicity should be the criteria. We believe there has to be justice. Many people thought that maybe the two-state solution was uh, a possible compromise, where you'd have a small Palestinian state in 22% of Palestine, which is Gaza and the West Bank side by side by Israel, which will be a Jewish state. That solution hasn't worked because Israelis started putting up Jewish settlements for Jews only throughout the occupied territories. So that doesn't work. I wrote a little book called Beyond the Two-State Solution, which people can download for free from the website of Nonviolence International nonviolenceinternational.net, you can download uh, that little book, which imagines how you can have a just society that is good for Arabs and Jews and that satisfies their needs 
except for exclusivity. It doesn't allow them to have total control to exclude the other group. So people can, in fact, live together. It's not true that we have been fighting or hating each other for centuries or for millennia. We can live together. The Zionist movement reacting to Western anti-Semitism uh, thought that, you know, we cannot trust anybody else. We need to have a Jewish state, a state of our own. The problem is they came to a place that was fully populated by Palestinian Arabs. And so to set up the state of Israel, they had to push out most of them and keep them out. In 1967, they captured the rest of Palestine. So now you have in the Holy Land two groups. There's about 7 million Jews and about 7 million Arabs. And the Jews have all the power and all the control. There are some good Jewish people in Israel and outside who also believe in equality. So I must make that clear. Zionism, even though it privileges Jews, and tries to have Jewish supremacy and Jewish domination, it doesn't speak for all Jews. Many Jews say, we believe in equality. We believe that Palestinians have, should have equal rights in Palestine, Israel, as uh, Jews. So we have to be very careful that when we oppose the state of Israel or its policies or its apartheid laws or its fascism, uh, we are not saying all Jews belong in that category because we have very important, essential Jewish allies in our fight for freedom and for justice. Yeah, I appreciate you giving that provision. I think that's an important thing to keep sight of. Um, just earlier today, I was reading Naeem Atik's book, uh, Palestinian Theology of Liberation. And he's talking about uh, about what it was like to grow up in Palestine b before all of this, right? And he was even talking then about the the way that society was multicultural and multireligious. And uh, I, I guess it just makes me feel that, you know, you're saying that's the way forward. And uh, there's something in the past, I think, there even, that uh, that society has existed before. But it, it seems like a lot of people are hearing, in the West at least, about the struggles of the Palestinians for the first time, which is frustrating. Um, but uh, just the way that I guess um, the media narratives work and have crafted particular types of truth in uh, North America and the United States, at least for sure. According to the UN last year, a majority of the population in Palestine is under 24. Uh, youth unemployment was nearly 70% and almost 65% of the population was moderately, severely food insecure. There's a lot of context going on with all of these numbers with regards to Palestine, but how would you lay out the basics of what has led to the present siege for people who may not have had a chance to learn about the crisis before you know this very moment? The state of Israel has succeeded in fragmenting the Palestinian people. The vast majority of our people are, are outside. They are refugees. They cannot even come back into the country. Uh, in Gaza, uh, People are living in, in this small enclave, as I described before, 2.3 million people. In the West Bank, there's another 3.3 million people who are living under Israeli military rule. Again, a separate set of laws, one that applies to Arabs and another that applies to Jews. In East Jerusalem, there's about 300,000 Palestinians who are resident, but not citizen. We can lose all rights if we leave, uh, if we don't actually live in Jerusalem. And then there are Palestinians who are Israeli citizens who do have the vote, but, but they are being kept in a very second class citizen status by a number of racist laws that favor Jews over non Jews in the state of Israel itself. But apart from that, Palestinians are being physically fragmented from each other and live under different rules. However, the Jews have one set of rules as Israeli law that provides them with privilege and domination wherever they live in all of Palestine. And even if they live abroad, they can always come in and they will automatically become citizens and have all the rights and privileges 
that are denied to people like myself, even if we were born and grew up there. Yeah, I mean, it's no wonder that there is a lot of tension in the region as a result of all these policies and decades of history and all these things you've been laying out for us here. Um, and I think people are also, again, just trying to understand more of that current landscape, which, you know, most of us probably don't think about unless it flares up in the news or kind of somebody says something on TV or whatever. Um, and and uh, I wonder if you can even help us kind of get into the specifics of this moment. Um, you know, since Hamas attacked on the 7th, which was over a week ago now, um, as you've already mentioned, you know, we've seen Israeli officials describe Palestinian, Palestinians as, as animals. They've cut off food and water and relief supplies. Um, they're preparing for invasion. You know, they're bombing residential buildings, all these things that, that you've already said. And as you mentioned, too, uh, people have defended that response in light of Hamas and, and what they did on the 7th. Um, you know, what is Hamas? And what do you say to people who legitimize that siege in light of, of those actions? You know, uh, the, even uh, Israeli officials often don't make any distinction between Hamas and Palestinians and so on. So help us kind of understand what's happening there. Hamas is the Islamic uh, resistance uh, movement. It is both a political movement and it has a military uh, component. Uh, but you see, this is where if you frame the, the, the conversation, then you decide on the outcome. If you frame the conversation, for example, that after what's happened in Western Europe and in the Holocaust, we need a Jewish state. Once you accept that, then whatever Israel does to make sure that the state remains Jewish becomes legitimate. If it has to push people out and keep them out, that's legitimate. If they have to pass laws that favor Jews over non-Jews, that's legitimate because it's a Jewish state. So everything flows from that premise. In this particular round of fighting, Israel started by framing it as being Hamas is a terrorist organization. It's an evil organization. They have attacked civilians. They are therefore pure evil. The job is to destroy Hamas. And therefore, anything and everything we do is legitimate because we are trying to destroy this evil. And if they are hiding underground, then we have to, in order to destroy them, we have to move all the residents off ground. One million people are told to get out of the way because we want to bomb Hamas because it's legitimate, because they are the evil ones. And, and if they resist us, then that they are even more evil. And we are entitled to go in and kill as many as we want. And if, if we actually commit genocide and push them totally out, push them into the Sinai Desert if we can, if Egypt would only allow us, we will push them all into the Sinai Desert. And then when, when Israeli uh, uh, actually said, we should build 10 cities in the Sinai and give them food and give them water and shelter to be in, 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 in Sinai. This way we can get rid of them. We can push them out. Uh, so th this kind of, all of this comes once you say Hamas is demonized and it's pure evil and you forget the context, you forget what led to this situation and you set up a goal and then you tell them, but you can't do this. Oh, okay. Maybe we should give them more than 24 hours to leave. Oh, maybe we should provide a humanitarian corridor. Oh, what else do we, can we do? Please tell us, how can we do this in a more humane way? But you have to accept the premise that the goal is to destroy Hamas. And then anybody and everybody who supports Hamas or shows solidarity with them or provides them with help becomes a legitimate target because Hamas is pure evil, and we want to destroy pure evil. And then even good people start saying, well, you know, not everybody is Hamas. It's true, not everybody is Hamas, but you've already accepted the premise that Hamas is pure evil. And therefore, anybody who supports them or in any way is, is part of them becomes legitimate target, and everybody else is collateral damage. And if we have to destroy this building, 
to, to, to kill somebody who we think is a Hamas leader, that's legitimate. And we feel sorry, and Hamas is responsible for the fact that we had to destroy that building because Hamas has an office in that building, or because we think Hamas has an office in that building. So once you accept to play the game according to those rules and to those perimeters, everything else flows from it. What you're saying makes sense, right? I think that analysis works, and I think it's it's helpful to think of it that way. But I also hear that tension in, in what you're saying as well, right? That um, that you're a pacifist and Hamas believes in armed struggle. That is um, a real a real difference uh, that I think needs to be you know thought through. Sabil has has a strong commitment to, to nonviolence, right? This is this is in the the DNA of the organization. And uh, whenever I've heard Naeem Atik uh, talk about nonviolence, or I've read him um, <laughs> talking about nonviolence, he'll often say that he's committed to that way of engaging, but he also understands those who choose a different path, uh, armed struggle or whatever it might be. So how does Sabil understand nonviolence in the context of the struggle in Palestine? And what does it mean for a moment like this one that we're in, where there is so much violence? Well. I still believe very strongly that war and violence is not the answer. In fact, Palestinians and Israelis must find a way to live together. In fact, when Hamas attacked Israel, attacked both civilians and army people, the response, unfortunately, was we will double down on violence. We will send them more. We'll send two aircraft carriers there. We'll send in the Marines. We'll give them more bombs. Instead of calling for de-escalation, the State Department actually says, don't use the word de-escalation. Don't use the word ceasefire. You don't hear the word calling for ceasefire and uh, reducing the level of violence. In fact, they called in the news agencies and says, don't use those words. Literally, don't use the word ceasefire. Don't use the word de-escalation. Don't use the word reducing tensions and reducing violence. Just let allow Israel to do whatever it wants and go in and bomb. And if they need more bombs, we'll send them more weapons and more bombs. It doesn't work. There can be no solution to this conflict through violence. And I say that to my Palestinian friends also. Yes, you have every right to resist this oppression, but violence is not going to succeed. It only introduces more and more violence and creates more and more hatred. We need to find ways to live together in justice, in justice, not just as, you know, accepting slavery and being quiet but we need to fight for our freedom in nonviolent yeah i mean what you just said is really interesting to me that uh sabil has this really unique role to play uh you know it's criticizing the state of israel it also has this independent position with respect to palestinian liberation and that must be kind of a hard road to walk. Like you, you know, it might be hard to make friends on one side or the other. I don't know. What's that experience like in, in the movement? Actually, it's not that hard. Most of my Palestinian friends, including, uh, certainly including Muslims and certainly even including those who believe in armed struggle, when I explain to them, they find that reasonable and meaningful. And, and when Palestinians say, okay, what do we do? Well, we have to get international solidarity. How about BDS, boycotts, divestments, and sanctions? These are nonviolent tools. But the other side says, oh, no, if you do BDS, that is not allowed. Well, what about going to the international court? No, 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 that's diplomatic terrorism. Well, what about calling for equality? No, 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 then you will have equal votes and one day you will become a majority and you'll be able to go. Well, you know, what they want is not Palestinians who are nonviolent. They want Palestinians who are quiet, who accept the situation, or better still, who don't exist at all, <laughs> who go somewhere else. 
who can be pushed off and stay in the Sinai Desert or stay in, in the diaspora and you're somebody else's problem, not ours. And, and we are the problem for many Zionists, our very existence. You know, I grew up thinking politics is bad, that as a Christian, I should avoid it. My kingdom is not of this world, should be more spiritual. Uh, th then, you know, in 1967, when Israel occupied Bethlehem, where I was living at that time, all of a sudden, politics was thrust upon me because I realized my very existence as a non-Jew in Bethlehem was a threat to Israel. Even though I believed in nonviolence and I didn't believe, I believe in coexistence and I believe I was very far away from anything that's political, yet by being a non-Jew, a Palestinian, who still thinks of this as my home and my homeland, I was an existential threat to Israel. So that, you know, politics was forced on me, it, uh, that I had to deal with this reality. How do I deal with it? I think it's a really strong testimony that, I mean, your very existence is <laughs> not, not that you, not that you chose, not that you went out of your way to be political, but your very existence is, is the issue itself, right? That's um, something that I think that people in the United States definitely need to hear uh, when it comes to Palestine. Along those lines, what can people do right now to be in solidarity with the people of Palestine? Um, how can they support the work of uh, the Sabil Network and particularly in, in North America? Well, right now, the need is for an immediate ceasefire. We really need a ceasefire. We really need to allow food, water, electricity, basic supplies to civilian people. We need to work on a prisoner exchange. All these hostages, horrible as it is, they need to be exchanged for Palestinian prisoners. There's over 5,000 people in Israeli prisons. 1,300 of them are administrative detainees. They've done nothing. They're not accused of doing anything. So here's a chance. Why don't we have some prisoner exchange? Why don't we open up the Gaza Strip instead of keeping it under siege and allow food and supplies and, and work and, 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 and industry uh, to, to, to flourish? Why don't we start challenging the very concept of apartheid? Demand equal rights to all God's children. Work out mechanisms for people to live together instead of kill each other and, and, and fight each other all the time. It is possible. You see, this is why Christians have some good news to bring to this equation. Right? Christian Zionism doesn't. Christian Zionism has bad news for Palestinians and for Jews. Christian Zionism teaches that you all come here so that you can either convert or be killed in Armageddon. The end times is bad news for Jews as well as for non-Jews. We have to have a positive message, a message of brotherhood, a message of equality, a message of coexistence. And a message of justice, because apartheid does not provide justice. You know, as you're speaking, it just strikes me that Christians, when we think of Palestine, most of us in North America, you know, we, we don't think of Palestine. We think of Israel. And we erase most Christians out of Palestine in our imaginations. And it's such a strange thing that uh, when Christians think about the conflict in the Middle East, they forget that there are also Christians in the Middle East who likely have very different opinions are on the, the receiving end of uh, Christian empires, you know, like uh, the U.S. is a Christian empire that, you know, invades countries like Iraq and Afghanistan and, you know, upholds places like uh, Israel's apartheid regime and so on. So, you know, for a listener base that is mostly Christians uh, outside the Middle East, um, you know, what would you maybe want to communicate or, or how, can, uh, how can Christians outside of the Middle East maybe better enter into that perspective and, and those experiences of exchange? Well, I think we have to be clear about where we stand. We stand for justice. We stand for equality. We stand against apartheid. We stand against anti-Semitism, but also Islamophobia and also any system 
that allows Jewish domination over non-Jews in Palestine. So that's a tall order, I know, but that's what we stand for. That's what we believe in. That's why you have a prophetic message to give. In this country, you know, we saw for the last week, 24-7 on all TV stations, from Fox News to MSNBC, all we've been hearing is about the agony of Israeli civilians who were either murdered or who were captured and taken as hostages. My heart goes out to all these people, especially the civilians among them, not the soldiers. But we haven't heard about the Palestinians who have been killed, who are in jail, who are kept either in an open-air prison, which is what Gaza is, or who are kept in regular Israeli jails. Those who died, by this morning it was 2,837, of whom 724 were children. And that's not counting those who have just died in the attack on the Arab Ahli Hospital. Now Israel says it's not our fault, we didn't do it. They actually dropped so many bombs on that small area. By their calculation, the first six days they dropped 6,000 bombs or rockets which is almost as much as the U.S. dropped on Afghanistan for a whole year. More than was dropped by NATO and the allies in Libya. And they say this is still just the beginning. We're going to drop some more. Half of the population of Gaza are children. Literally half of the population. And they are God's children. Even those who are not Christian, who are Muslim. Some of them are fighters. Some of them are referred to as terrorists. But the vast majority are not involved at all. But they are God's children. And we have to show some love towards them. I think in the coming few days, The call for a ceasefire, the call for humanitarian assistance to allow it. I mean, it's there, it's available. Just allow it in. Uh, the call to restore electricity and water and fuel is, is, is going to become the basic call that Christians must be involved in. And, and Israelis realize that. They say we have a very short window. We can go in and, and do whatever we want because now we have the green light, particularly from the United States, but also Europe and the rest of the world. And we must do the job quickly and finish it up because sooner or later, they are going to tell us to stop because the cost, the human cost is too high. So Christians must increase that cost immediately. Call for a ceasefire now. Stop the bloodshed. For both sides, show God's love to both sides. I think that is the first and most important thing that we should be involved in right now. Unlike the State Department that says, don't talk about ceasefire, don't talk about de-escalation, uh, don't talk about you know uh, reducing the level of violence. No, let them go in and do whatever it takes to finish the job. What's finish the job? What do you mean finish the job? The job may not be finished. It means just an open season, kill as many, drop as many bombs, hit as many targets, do, and if you can't find the target, hit whatever is in the way, move all the whole population. It's, it's horrendous what is happening. And I think Christians have a duty. I never thought that we would actually see genocide taking place on live television in real time. And genocide always starts with dehumanizing the other side. They're animals, they're terrorists, they're awful, they're bad people, they're pure evil. We, we have to destroy them, we have to annihilate them. And then eh, if you ask, no, we're only talking about Hamas 
actually they're talking about all Palestinians. And the Israeli President Herzog made it clear, this is no such thing as, as, as innocent civilians. They should all have risen and gotten rid of Hamas. They're all guilty. The President of Israel said that. That's how genocide starts. You dehumanize an entire population, and then you start gradually killing. A challenging word uh, at the end, but I think an important thing to kind of let that hang out there uh, at the end of the episode here. Um, Jonathan, just want to say thank you so much for sharing uh, with us your perspective and uh, what you've said. It's a difficult moment and difficult time, and uh, I'm sure very hard also to continue talking about, and we're grateful for that. Um, if people want to support Sabil and the work that you do, um, how can they find you and what's a good way for them to engage with you? Yes, they should go to Fosna, F-O-S-N-A dot org. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You can also uh, go find out more about uh, the Friends of Sabil North America at Fosna, F-O-S-N-A dot org. Um, and go and check out all the things going on their website. Um, a helpful educational resource uh, to figure out what Christians think in Palestine. So definitely worth going to do that. You can follow them on social media and everything else. Our intro music is by Amaria Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Logical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. Besides, what else?